So good evening. Tonight I would like to speak about a teaching called, it was traditionally called the Four Mind Changes or the Four Mind Changing Reflections. But it has more recently been described as the Four Reminders. And I think it's a it's something that we can all use to, um, to move our hearts, to shake us up again, to remember what our values are and what's important to us. And in what I consider a Dharma desert, uh, uh, go to the, to the well for some uh, nourishment. The way these came to me, these four reminders, four mind-changing reflections, um, was by accident. And it happened when I was a college graduate. I was 21 or 22 years old. And I was drifting aimlessly, existentially, anxiety-ridden, uh, but I managed to make my way to to Asia. We were actually just speaking about uh, a portion of my trip. I might as well give you just a 10-second version of it. Uh, I ended up going to visit a professor in uh, in Pakistan and ended up playing in a golf tournament in Pakistan. <laughs> so that's the kind of magical mystery tour it was. And most of you may know my last name is Cone, and they asked me to stand up at the awards ceremony of this golf tournament, and they said, Mr. Howard Cone, I shouldn't, you know, I don't know how to do this accent very well, but he's, he, Mr. Howard Khan has come all the way from the USA to play in our golf tournament, but I hadn't really come for that purpose, but... I didn't know what I was doing, where I was going, but I happened to meet a guy in uh, Afghanistan who was, had been in the Peace Corps in this area of Afghanistan. He was making a little pilgrimage back to the place that he had done his, his work. And he was doing this as a kind of last hurrah before he became a monk. And he was moving to Dharamsala, India to become a Tibetan monk. And he said, go see the Dalai Lama. And I didn't know who the Dalai Lama was. I often joke that I, in my mind, I kept hearing Shmale Lama. And it was a... <laughs> but nevertheless, there was something about this fellow's presence. And in fact, he spoke to me one evening, late into the night in this little teeny tea shop that with a ceiling not much above my head. And he kept talking about... Uh, self and emptiness and things like that, but it something pierced my heart and and i I remember getting kind of manic and i couldn 't sleep the whole night and really it began to stir my heart and I think it was a very instrumental moment. but the first part of the the um, momentum of that evening 's conversation was to go to see the Dalai Lama and sure enough, I walked up to the dalai lama 's door and he greeted my friend and I. He had just come out of a retreat with, uh, that he'd been in for six weeks or so, and he came out of the retreat in order to meet with some 
Tibetans from Ladakh, from a place way up in the north. And we, had, we were the beneficiaries of, of their visit. And we walked in and he immediately said, uh, he, we did the little scarf thing and we touched heads and all that. And he said, go study with the, the teacher who, who works with Westerners. So for the next two weeks, I heard this teaching over and over and over again. And it's really etched in my heart. I have, as you can see, piles of things that I could share with you tonight. You know, that reminds me of Blaise Pascal where he says, I apologize for the long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. <laughs> but I really can do this from my, from my heart because it's made such an impact just to have these little thoughts floating through my consciousness. And I think they really encapsulate everything you've been learning on the retreat and everything that I think is very useful to call upon, remember in our life. And I think I'd like to start the talk by reading a, a poem from, from Derek Walcott. And it's entitled, Love After Love. This really captures the essence of the first one of the mind-changing reflections, but I, I want to do this as a kind of invocation. And it really brings together uh, Anna's spe- talk from last night about Papancha and all the imaginary worlds that we wander in. That imaginary version of ourself, that person who doesn't even really exist. doesn't mean you don't exist, but that version that's playing and how easy it is to miss the preciousness, the immediacy of our existence here. So this uh, is my little invocation. It's called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here. You will love again the stranger who was yourself, Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Everything comes down to this feasting on our life. Everything reminds us to appreciate the first of the mind-changing reflections. The first reminder, just to, the first reminder is that this life is incredibly precious. And when we're in touch with it, we know that. Not because of anything. There's no reason for that. It just is in its intrinsic nature. It's precious. And we immediately begin as we slow down, as we touch the immediacy of sitting together, being together, any time that we're intimate, even in an intimate conversation, there's something almost inherently satisfying about the immediacy of just being here. And the encouragement is that we appreciate that preciousness, that we come out of the tangle of, of our um, loneliness and all the, what seems a very human experience of feeling separated like we're the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. But yet, it is born of a, 
of a delusion because of course the wave is never separated from the ocean. This wonderful David White poem reminds me of this preciousness, the preciousness of our existence. And I think maybe you're more in touch with it now. He says, your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. As if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence, the chorus, the crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. So easy in the course of our lives to, to miss that inherent meaning and inherent value of, the, of our very existence, the preciousness of human life. Now, traditionally, this reflection was, and they really need to strike you in the heart, and I don't usually emphasize this because this didn't really strike me in the heart because it seemed like it was from some other time where there was, and it asked people to invite, uh, to uh, adopt a kind of belief system. But here's what they used to say about the precious human birth, that it is very rare to be born a human. It's really hard to get here, and it's easy to lose. And you could have been born in, in many different other realms. You could have been born as a barbarian. You could have been born in what's called the realm of the hungry ghosts, which we, do, which we are born into from, now, from time to time. The, the realm of the hungry ghosts is a plane of existence where people have little mouths and huge stomachs. I think our, our general culture is a, is a uh, hungry ghost culture. But c- these planes of existence were considered literal, and you could be born in an animal realm where you're constantly either hunting or being hunted, uh, in a, uh, a, re- a hell realm where everything is, where you're just burning with desire or burning with hatred. And of course, these are all metaphors for states that we can enter into in this very life but they were considered really literal, that it is so rare to be born as a human. This is what uh, the Buddha said. He said, suppose that there was a blind turtle at the bottom of a great ocean. Somewhere on the surface of the ocean, there's a ring of wood floating on the waves with the wind blowing it back and forth. The blind turtle, a blind turtle happens to surface once every hundred years. And the chance that that blind turtle will put his head through the ring of wood are greater than the chances of being, a human, of being born a human. So we're pretty lucky. Now, did that really grab your heart? That didn't grab my heart. 
It's an interesting thought. And I don't know, I'm an agnostic, and I don't even have to believe that, uh, that I could have been born a turtle or a, a frog or something. But I, don't, I do know that depending on how I work with my mind, I can be born metaphorically into the realm of the hungry ghosts or into the barbarians. Or I've, I've incarnated as all those things. And, and we, uh, the encouragement is that you stay in the human realm where there is this measure, equal measure of pain and pleasure and these worldly winds, they actually create the friction that uh, keeps us awake, that, that makes us not become completely complacent and just uh, lost in a dreamscape. But what's really touched me in this reminder was to, uh, to appreciate the preciousness of this life to make something of this life, to live this life really well, to love really well, to serve well, to to take advantage of the preciousness of every moment on this uh, on this earth. Now you may think, and I was thinking about this today from a from a, a skeptical point of view. Well, why, if you just die, why why do you why do we spend so much time getting, waking up. And, and I realize that it has nothing to do with whether I live or die or how many lifetimes I have. It has to do with what is the cause of, of living a happy life. And it turns out that if I take advantage of this precious life and live it well, live it wisely, live it lovingly, live it caringly, then I'm happier when I appreciate the preciousness of these doors of perception that are completely miraculous. No one could ever explain the fact of sight, sound, smell, taste. And if, do I want to do anything in my life that will obscure that, will make me unable to actually appreciate this preciousness of, of my existence that would zap me of the, of the gratitude that has just been flowing from all of you today. It's amazing listening to the groups. It's one person after another. I'm grateful, I'm grateful. I was really reminded today that you are very much in touch with the preciousness of, of this situation, but also just the preciousness that comes from being present. I was thinking of Thoreau, who had this beautiful little passage. He said, I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. My thanksgiving is perpetual. It's strange how... Wait, let's see. I have to start over. I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. My thanksgiving is perpetual. It's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. Oh, how I laugh at my vague, indefinite riches, for no run on my bank can drain it. For my wealth is not possession, but enjoyment, enjoyment of being. Why would I ever deprive myself of of that appreciation? that joy 
And the whole of the Buddha's teaching is about happiness. He was called Sukhiya, the happy one. And it's the whole of our practice is about how to be happy. So the, none, of the, none of these reminders are, are news to any of us. A reminder of the preciousness of our life. But they seem to, as one teacher said, they t- seem to slither out of our consciousness very easily. And we can forget and then get carried along by the stream of, of I call it the obsession with what's next and overlook the true source of joy and happiness and well-being, which is really this very moment that we're sitting together. That's all there is. Everything else about our life is imaginary except us together here tonight. It's all a story. It's wonderful that we can tell that story, think about it, but this is where the action is. As my teacher in India says, you are, in spite of what your mind is telling me, telling you, you are neck deep in grace. Already immersed in the very thing that you've been searching for and maybe still searching for. So this reflection, this reminder of the preciousness of our existence, I think our practice itself reminds us quietly but it is, it's always helpful. It's the, one of the best uses of our conceptual mind to uh, remind us of things that are, that are useful and helpful. I found this little advertisement. This is not a humorous advertisement. This was someone advertising their medallion jewelry up in uh, British Columbia. And it was... She, this, this woman was, cre- had created all these little reflections. This was the autumn reflection. I know it's entering into spring and summer, but this was the autumn one. And it just, you could tell she was, she was using, she was reflecting, she was remembering. One sits by the river with no purpose, just to sit and be with nowhere to go, nothing to think about. One watches all the subtle activities of the forest and the water, listens to all the little sounds, feels with all the senses. The mind is empty. The body is fully alive. In this state, mind and body melt into life and there's no separation. It's an absolute union. Our primal and primary nature. So the other thing about making something of our life so that we live well, so that when we look back, we can say we lived well, we loved well, we cared well, we worked well, because every job will end, everything we do. And this life and the conditions that we find ourselves in our life, the fact that you could be here, this is high privilege. This is incredible. There are billions of billions upon billions of people that wouldn't even be safe to meet like this. Let alone have minds that have, uh, have the freedom to, uh, to 
uh, study and read and then be interested enough to then put it to practice. It's such an expression of your purity that you're even here and your great, great good fortune. And there are so many people in the world that couldn't do this, wouldn't do it, or, you, or they could be metaphorically born into all these other realms. You can see, look at our different political parties. See, I have to, that's a, to always pull myself back from the brink there of getting into trouble. But our conditions, the ones that we find ourselves in at the end of this retreat, the, the birth of our, the rebirth of our daily life, just like this retreat, conditions change on a dime. And that, um, you know, just think of, about your life in the last year, all the dramas, all the things that have happened. There have probably been losses. There have been, your resources may have changed, your, your loved ones changed, relationships, uh, jobs. I think the number one description that most people offer when they describe their life is transition. And that's just the, that's sometimes the gradual change, but it's the sudden ones. Things can change in, in a moment. Just think of all the natural disasters and war and through no fault of anyone's, our conditions can change because we're so much part of a, of a net of interconnectedness. That's not meant to scare us. It's meant to, to um, encourage us to seize the moment to, and also to fortify our hearts and minds. It's another good reason to take advantage of this life because you really do have to learn to, to go with the flow. And that leads to the second mind-changing reflection, the second reminder, and that is the reflection that we've been referring to over and over on the retreat and that is the reality of change and impermanence. More specifically, the reality of death. The reality of aging. The reality of our conditions. Uh, from, As one teacher put it, from the moment we're born, we're sinking ships. <laughs> and it was that reality of being sinking ships on so many different levels that that uh, faith, coming face to face with that reality was the mind or heart-changing reflection that led the Buddha to his awakening. It was the number one cause of his turn, his, his grinding turn, his about face from the world of filling his, his days with every imaginable sense pleasure to turning toward the desire, a very strong desire, an intense longing, but it was a longing for the only, the, a desire for the only thing that no other desire can fulfill, the desire for freedom. And it was seeing, as all of you know who know the story of the Buddha, seeing the so-called first three heavenly messengers and then the four heavenly messengers, but the first three really shook him up. And they're meant to. They're meant to shake us all up in a, because they become our springboards to nirvana. He faced sickness, old age, death. And it's said that at the, in the moments of him uh, seeing the reality of that and reflecting, could this happen to me? 
And he said, and his attendant said, of course. Or he, said, he realized, of course this will happen to me. And we always wonder how someone 29 years old would not be aware of the, the reality of sickness, old age, and death. But it speaks to the level of, of self-deception, how easy it is for us to be asleep for those, the reminder to slither out of, the, out of our consciousness and think we have endless time. So it's said that at the moment that he recognized the uh, reality of sickness, old age, and death, that, the, that three things that we tend to become most uh, identified with just melted away. What he called the pride in youth. And boy, do we live in a culture of pride in youth. And it causes so much misery. Just the level of, of self-beautification and... Uh, just the cult of, of young. Pride in youth vanished. Pride in health. And pride in life, interestingly enough. He was willing to practice uh, with, as one of my teachers called it, without regard for body or life. So determined was he to, to seize reality and not to fall into some kind of dreamy delusion about uh, endless pleasure. So we, can't, we have to keep a sense of humor about it. And so many people have written funny things about it. One person talked about the four stages of life. You believe in Santa Claus. You don't believe in Santa Claus. You are Santa Claus. You look like Santa Claus. <laughs> or sometimes we need some statistics to help remind us that everything is in a state of flux and change. How about this one? Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour. About 1.5 pounds a year. By 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most... (laughs) Most... Most dust particles in your home are made from dead skin. (laughs) But this is the more creative part. The (laughs) The body makes new stomach lining every five days, replaces a new head every two to five years, replaces a new set of eyebrows every three to five months, body grows new skin once a month, replaces a new skeleton every seven years, 50,000 cells of your body will die and be replaced with, an, with new cells while you listen to this sentence. In a constant state of change, impermanence. In fact, one teacher, Matthew Flickstein, put it so succinctly. He said, everything is always becoming other than it just was a moment before. Therefore, in actuality, it's not that everything is impermanent, but that impermanence is the only thing that there is. And this is the, this is the, um, this is the teaching that we, are, we tend to be so most deluded about. The, there is a list of the, um, of the three most common misperceptions that, that human beings have. And the number one is 
we take that which is impermanent to be permanent. And because we don't recognize the first one, we fall into the second one. We take that which is unreliable or unsatisfactory, because everything that's impermanent is unsatisfactory, we take that which is unsatisfactory to be satisfactory. And because everything is impermanent and we miss that, we also miss the fact that everything we take to be self is not self, because anything that is impermanent cannot said to be me or mine. And just think of all the things that we say are me or mine. And as Goenka, a great teacher, said, eventually I is always separated from mine. So we need to learn about this. In fact, every day in monasteries in Asia and even in this country, a chant is done reminding us that it is really coming into harmony with impermanence that really eases the heart. This is exactly what happened to the Buddha. I'll say a little bit more about that. They chant every day this, and I think we should do it together as our, uh, as our reminder and our, as our, um, the beginning of this reflection. Hopefully this will uh, some, be something you do every single day. First we'll do the Pali. We'll do a call and response since you might not know it. It goes like this. Anicca vada sankara Upadua yudamino, Upakitua, Niruchanti, Te Sang, Upasamo, Suko. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. Then we have Woody Allen, <laughs> who says, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> This is a continual reminder, this reflection on impermanence is a, that reminder that we have to let go. The famous William Blake poem that most of you have probably heard where he says, she, I'll use the feminine tonight, uh, she who binds to herself a joy does the winged life destroy. But she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. So our not being in harmony, falling into that misperception about impermanence keeps us unable to really enjoy our life and kiss the joys as they, as they fly. And there's so much clinging and holding. And of course, when we see things the way they are, clinging makes no sense. It's, it's silly. But we're trained in the opposite direction. That's why we need to use these uh, these reflections. It's also to um, not take everything, when we know that it's so ephemeral, so dreamlike, I think there's a, 
a little passage from from the Diamond Sutta that says, Thus shall we think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. When we realize that dreamlike nature of our life, there's something, at least in me, as even I see you in your part of my dreamscape in a way. You will appear tonight and I'll appear tonight. Well, then it'll all vanish just as it always does. But somehow in seeing you and seeing myself in that way, I can't take it all too seriously. It's all going to be gone quite quickly. I want to really seize it while I'm here. But I don't, I don't want to... It's not so heavy. It's actually light. It's dreamlike. And so I think we can all take advice from the wonderful 85-year-old woman named Nadine Stair, who back in the 60s wrote this poem called If I Had My Life to Live Over. If I had my life to live over, I'd make more mistakes next time. I would limber up. I would be sillier than I've been this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I would take more chances. I would climb more mountains and swim more rivers. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. (laughs) I would perhaps more actual trouble, but I I would have fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who live sensibly and sanely, hour after hour, day after day. Well, I've had my moments, and if I had it to do over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I try to have nothing else, just moments, one after another, instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those persons who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a raincoat, and a parachute. If I had it to do over again, I would travel lighter than I have. If I had my life to live over, I would start barefoot early in the spring, earlier in the spring, and stay that way later in the fall. I would go to more dances. I would ride more merry-go-rounds. I would pick more daisies. So this is the constant. uh, This is reflection is the reminder to let go. And the only thing that keeps us clinging is uh, our own mind. We actually have the freedom to let go, to let be as is. An example or a a story about this letting go and our power to let go. There's a kind of monkey trap used in Asia. A coconut is hollowed out. It's it's a little painful when I read this story on one hand because I always feel for the animal that it describes, but nevertheless, it's still... Illustrative, that was the word we used, you used last night, Anna. A coconut is hollowed out and attached by a rope to a tree or a stake in the ground. The bottom of the coconut, a small slit is made and some sweet food is placed inside. The hole on the bottom is just big enough for the monkey to slide in his open hand but does not allow for a closed fist to pass out. The monkey smells the sweets, reaches in with his hand to grasp the food 
and is then unable to withdraw it. The clenched fist won't pass through the opening. When the hunters come, the monkey becomes frantic but cannot get away. There is no one keeping that monkey captive except the force of his own attachment. All that he has to do is open his hand. But so strong is the force of greed in the mind that it is a rare monkey which can let go. It is the desire and clinging in our minds which keeps us trapped. And it's precisely this ongoing reflection on impermanence and change and the defects of of the misperception that you can find any ultimate satisfaction in changing conditions. So in the face of change, the Buddha said, and I imagine that all of us want to find a, a place to rest. Everything is changing. Everything is appearing and disappearing. Where's the refuge? Where's the relief? Where's that sukha that comes from opening to impermanence? I mean, we understand now as we, as we just reflect on this now that there's just something... We know when something lets go. We know when there's not clinging that there's a, a sense of well-being. Even if it is constantly changing. But we know that because we've been pointed in the direction of, of seeing what actually helps us be free. The Buddha, at the time of the Buddha, he, there was nobody to point it out to him. He was just, he was just wandering around and he had this holy longing and what did he do? He fortunately saw that fourth heavenly messenger in the form of a, of a monastic, a monk, a renunciate. And he started to practice, doing a lot of what we did here. And he, he very quickly attained to great states of, of tranquility and concentration, described in the suttas as unmixed happiness, mind free of any hindrances, This is how he was trying to find something reliable to rest in, in the face of of sickness, old age, and death. And the pleasure that he felt was so extraordinary, far superior to the very quick and fleeting pleasures that he called ordinary or conventional sense pleasures, which he also called the, the pleasure that comes with them, he called the sukha, uh, uh, he called it lokiya sukha, worldly comfort or happiness. He also called it the happiness of bondage because the tendency to get hooked, the happiness of slavery. But this was extraordinary. He really thought he had it. His mind suffused with light and love, wholeness. But then something dawned on him he saw that even that most rarefied experience, I'd say this because there's a tendency for all of us to remember a a rarefied experience we have on the retreat and then try to replicate it, either the next retreat or at home. 
we, we call it here, carrying the corpses of previous retreats. <laughs> but anyway, he realized that even that, um, that most rarefied state was also subject to impermanence and change. And that's, that was the highest teaching of the day that he could find. Nobody was teaching freedom. They were teaching high states, which turned out to be just a high-class form of, of uh, the happiness of slavery. So then he tried to, as you know, he tried to starve himself and, and find a reliable refuge that way. And all he did was get sick, tired, and very hungry. And then he realized that there's got to be, there's, uh, he, it's then when he realized that there's something that's beyond both of these extremes. Not somewhere in the middle, but beyond both. Some place where the mind must rest that's not influenced by uh, dependency on, on uh, rigid fundamentalism and, and uh, denial, nor in indulgence but a, a different kind of practice. And he did what, we, what we've all been doing over this retreat. And fortunately, in his practice, he was able to see more microscopically. He used all that concentration, but instead of just letting the joy of it overtake him and then getting all diluted, as we tend to do, like, wow, which is great, it's wow. But he's, and he even said that in his teaching that that's, those wow moments are a springboard. They, get us go, they keep us going. But he also said they're the corruptions of insight. So rather than let all that pleasure take him over, he was getting wise to the changing nature of it. He instead started paying attention just the way that all of us have over the course of this retreat. And lo and behold, as you have seen, as we see in every cell of our body, every sound, every sight, every thought, all of it appearing and disappearing, rising and passing, everything marked by change. Not theoretical. You experience it as your own nature. You are change. There's nothing anywhere that you can say, this is me, this is mine, that, does, that, that stays solid and the same every, every moment. And the more he saw that, the more his mind stopped grabbing, stopped pushing away, stopped creating an identity around it, stopped adding a whole self-story, what he called Sakaya Ditti, the story of me. Instead, he just saw the arising and passing of things, and instead of it being a bummer, just by virtue of bearing witness to the magical display of life, he experienced this great joy that's called the joy of equanimity, of not reacting, of not moving toward, not moving away. All the joys, all the sorrows, everything included. So this is a reminder that meditation is not about suppressing anything. It's not about turning into a a numbskull, into a dullard, into a blob, into a passionless being. It's about having passion for presence and, and seeing that great joy, what he called vipassana happiness, the happiness of seeing the arising and passing of things and not being involved. And he realized, ah, now this is, I'm 
this is something, this is a sense of well-being that I'm having that doesn't seem to depend on what's going on in my mind or my body or my life. It's, it's from somewhere else. And we've been pointing to that, that, that immutable, you could say, that immovable, that unconditioned, that unborn knowing that follows us, as they say in the Bhagavad Gita, nearer than near, nearer than the breath itself. Follows you through, your, like the Derek Walcott, the one who, whom you've ignored for another, who knows you by heart. And we, this is what we, uh, we naturally settle back into that as we experience more harmony, clearer perception of the fact of impermanence and change. So he didn't stop, or the teachings don't stop there. There is, the, there is in the teachings on wise view or wise understanding, there's the, um, there's the more absolute, which speaks of the absolute nature of reality and the nature of impermanence and change. But there's also uh, what's sometimes called, I don't think it's actually a fair description, but it's sometimes called mundane wise view. And within mundane wise view, it's the wisdom that reminds us all of the, uh, what the Buddha called the light of the world, the law of karma. Karma means action. The light of the world that every action, every volitional action of our, that's done with our body, whatever comes out of our mouth, whatever we think, Every single action of body, speech, and mind produces a result. Every action has a fruit. Every seed planted has a fruit. And that we really need to appreciate that. As one of our teachers, a wonderful teacher that Anna was speaking about, Ruth Dennison, used to say in her very thick German accent, you don't get away with anything. Or she didn't, that sounded more Midwestern, but. <laughs> but everything, everything that we do, everything we say, everything we think has a result. We won't, we don't know. We can't see, have, we don't have the vision to see how things exactly ripen, how our actions ripen. But I think we can see well enough that when we act with ill will, we suffer in some way. When we act with loving kindness, it tends to, bring ease. If we act with generosity, it brings joy to the heart, as we were talking about Donna today. But on the other hand, the radical offering, the radical contribution to the conversation on karma that the Buddha gave was that the fruits of whatever we do with our body, our speech, and our mind, the fruits of an action is determined by the engine behind it, the motivation behind it, the intention behind it. So if you give a gift so somebody will like you, we'll have a very different result than if there's just a natural movement of the heart to share out of love, out of caring, out of really wanting to pave someone's way in some, some way. So the action may be the same, but the result very different. But our actions matter. And this is... This is just a, a, 
something that governs all of our lives. Joseph Goldstein says it, uh, said it this way, that our life doesn't arise by chance. He said, water freezes when it is at a certain temperature, not just because we wish it to freeze. Likewise, the conditions for our taking birth, whatever our present circumstances, are our own past wholesome actions. And what I like to think of when he describes taking birth, it is how we take birth every moment. You can, it's hard to verify the, the notion of lifetimes. And again, I don't, I'm not sure about different lifetimes, but I can see the way I'm reborn into states of mind, reborn into habits, reborn into the fruits of, of the habits that I, that I engage in. So the conditions for our taking birth, whatever our present circumstances, are our own past wholesome actions. We are the heir of our own deeds. The under, this understanding, as Joseph says, helps us regard our own particular, particular life story with all its joys and difficulties with a deep and genuine respect. So this, when we see how everything unfolds according to our actions, the fact that we're here, we can... It, for me, this totally, just the fact that you're here cuts through the whole notion of unworthiness. That, that narrative, that again, that version of ourselves, that somebody who doesn't even exist, who could never be captured here in this room. I always think of the, I think it was, um, who was it, William Blake? He said something, one of the, one of the poets said, um, something to the effect of who you are shout so loud I can't hear what you say. (laughs) Where's the unworthiness here? Where is all that? We're here we are here reality is we're here. We're meant to be here. How do we know that? As Katie Byron say how do we know we're meant to be here? Because we're here. (laughs) Reality is the is the highest order, she says. But we're here not by accident, by the planting of seeds. But I like to think of karma as, as an opportunity, as a reminder that every moment, every moment is a, uh, you could say, a field of open, creative possibility. I like to see karma not in that kind of pop way that you, you're, if you'll be reborn as a, as a, a, a dog or, or whatever it is. That the deterministic version of karma, that's just superstition in a way. But more the potential, the creative potential to plant seeds in our lives that, that, bring, that bring well-being and bring happiness. As the Buddha put it, whatever one frequently thinks about, dwells upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. And Padmasambhava said, if you want to understand your past, look at your present experience. If you want to understand your future, look at your present actions. 
What seeds are you planting? From the Dhammapada, the thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its way with care, and let it spring from love, born of concern for all beings. How do you think we got to to uh, being, well, it was very innocent, but how did we get to be so critical of ourselves and others? It's the result of what we practiced. Innocently, we picked up all kinds of messages, some kind of impossible uh, model or ideal that we we're supposed to live up to. And of course, we internalized that from the, all the teachers and the schools and the parents and this and that. That's the, that's the fruit of past karma, past actions, knowingly and unknowingly. But how do we, how do we actually experience love? I think this retreat is the, is the perfect example of the fruits of karma. From my vantage point, at this point in the retreat, you all look beautiful. I can't say you didn't look beautiful, but no. <laughs> but you look a lot lighter, brighter, more tender, more open. That's not an accident. It's because of the seeds you've been planting. It's because you've been continually cleansing your senses, opening. And the beautiful thing is that when we attend to ourselves this way, this is what you get. You get a sense of open-heartedness. Get clarity of mind. Get more caring. It's not an accident. As Hafiz puts it, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. (laughs) You have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard to the divine. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun. Let's start laughing, drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. I'll help you with my divine lyre and drum. Hafiz will sing a thousand words you can take into your hands like golden saws, silver hammers, polished teakwood, strong silk rope. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So we'll talk more tomorrow about some of the seeds that you can plant. Uh, I, the seeds of planting the seeds of, of non-harming, of wise action, the seeds of, of, um, of altruism, having the, having the um, what it's sometimes called the bodhisattva ideal or the bo- of cultivating bodhicitta, the desire to awaken for the benefit of others. A passage that I share, uh, that I do when I sit every time before I hit the gong and what goes frequently in my mind is the wish to be a benefit, and the sitting, work, whatever it is. And it, it starts to take root. You plant seeds, you get, it, it produces a result. Well, 
I've run a little bit out of time, but I just want to say a few things about the third. So we've got the preciousness of human birth. We've got impermanence. We've got karma. Think about these all the time. The last one is called reflecting on the defects of samsara. Now, samsara is the Sanskrit or Pali word that means endless wandering. This is the reminder. I'll just succinctly put it. Enough with trying to keep up with the Joneses. As Bo Lozoff puts it, it's time that we understand that the Joneses are not happy. And then he proceeds to give a litany of all the problems that come from being caught in the endless search for happiness in an imagined future that never arrives because time is always now. And all the ways that we go out in search. Just very simply by the Dal- from the Dalai Lama, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered, man. Because he sacrifices his health in order to make money, then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. Or the character in the advertising uh, called Spence. Who many of you have heard about Spence put a new twist on an old philosophy. He said to be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. And this is defective. Just like our, all, the, <laughs> all, of our, all the studies that have been done on, on daydreaming, even though maybe it is, it, you know, it's just a habit, but there is a misplaced faith in this seeking after things that are not present this effusion of thought, the effusion of fantasy, effusion of plans, because it, it, it makes us overshoot the present. And in fact, it makes the present harder to live in, harder to live for, harder to appreciate the preciousness of it. And if anybody is interested in looking at a study of the effects of daydreaming, there's a wonderful study on the internet talks where people were, they were several hundred thousand um, beeps given to people and, ask, and they were asked what, they were, what was in their mind and 46.9% of the time they were daydreaming. And to a person, it actually made their, the, the tasks that they were trying to do harder. So this tendency to go out of ourselves, to be caught in a state of becoming always in that state of, of thinking tomorrow will be better, it makes us weary, tired, and it's got to, it's got to stop. <laughs> I'm sorry, I laughed. It just sounded like my mother. It's got to stop. <laughs> but I think the, the more accurate definition of the defects of samsara is that life is, um, is, in, is in constant flux, and our body changes continually. People change, situations change, nothing endures. These are all hard things to bear. Whole worlds like this, nothing solid. And we want things to be substantial. 
And it's hard for us to deal with the fact that everything is changing. Life is not easy. Everything that we hold near and dear, we will have to, have to give up. That's not easy. So the encouragement in this reflection on the defects of samsara is to, is to get real with it, is to, be, is to open to it. It's really the, the reminder of the Buddha's prescription for dealing with the first noble truth. Open to it. Because the being in contention with this is what keeps us on that wheel. So every day reflecting about life is hard. Okay, let reality be my guide rather than, than dreamy fantasy. That doesn't mean you shouldn't fantasize. Fantasy is great too, but, but live in the reality of things. Just close quickly with um, the words of Gendon Rinpoche because this, these reminders and everything we're doing is really about happiness. He says, happiness can be found, cannot be found through effort, great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. So why identify with it and become attached to it? Passing judgment upon it and ourselves, far better to simply allow the entire life to happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically, again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you in every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They're like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there. Open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Emaho, marvelous, everything unfolds of itself. Appreciate the preciousness of your own life. Remember it changes. Plant wholesome seeds. And don't try to keep up with the Joneses. Thank you for your attention. And just for one moment, forget everything that's been said. And rest, as one of the, my teachers says, rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind. Twenty-five minutes for walking.
for enjoying this precious life of yours, and thanks again for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.